Has the water ever talked to you? Has a book ever spoken to you? What was your response? In Psalm 19, we have this sort of imagery, and there's a couple of different ways to look at it. In terms of theological categories, the first verses here, verses 1 through 6, we could call general revelation. Verses uh, 7 through 11 are talking about special revelation. And then verses 12 through 14 would be our response to those two things. But as we move through the psalm, I think there's also something else interesting which is taking place, which is that the, the nonverbal aspects of God's creation testify to Him and result in His glory and praise Him. And then we move into how God's Word points to Him. And then we see how we as God's people ought to respond to Him in light of those first two things, what we know about God through creation, and through God's law. And so let's start with what we see in verse 1, where it says in the well-known verse, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. How does this take place? It is possible not to really pay attention to the sunrise or the sunset to look up and see the stars. It is possible to be so busy that we just never even notice those things. But if we pause and we notice those things, they communicate to us something. They create within us a question of why does this beauty exist? Who made these things? How do they function the way that they do? And the only right answer is God. When it says declaring the work of his hands, um, you might look at something that is well-crafted and be amazed at the skill of the person who designed it, who, who put it together. Um, there was a brief time where I, I did a stint of attempting to learn woodworking, and I realized that there's a very steep learning curve with doing woodworking well and that I didn't have the patience at the time to uh, ascend that curve. But I got the opportunity in connection with that to see various amazing things that people had made in terms of on a lathe or a furniture or those sorts of things. And just some of the things that people crafted are quite amazing. But when you look at those things, you don't look at those things and say, wow, what a great table. What a great bowl. What a great candlestick. I mean, maybe at first. But almost immediately, you start to wonder, I wonder who made this. What skill that would have taken. You start to think about what the one that stands behind the thing that you see. And when creation tells of God's glory, declares the work of His hands, that's what's taking place. We shouldn't look at the sky and say, oh, what a wonderful sky. And stop there. We should say, who stretches out the span of the firmament with his power? I mean, Isaiah talks about a God whose hand spans the heavens. Stop and think about that for a moment. 
We're impressed when, when we can traverse the United States in aircraft, for example. Uh, if I remember correctly, the SR-71 Blackbird, which was one of the fastest planes that was ever made, could cross the U.S. coast to coast in about an hour. God just has to do this and span the heavens. That should cause us to think. How does this communicate, though? Verse 2, day-to-day pours forth speech, and night-to-night reveals knowledge. Basically, from the moment that the day begins until the time when it ends, things are communicated about God and His glory and His majesty, and the proper response is to be amazed at those things and marvel at them and give praise to God along with them. But it's not with words. We've all seen those planes pulling those massive banners that say different things in the sky. It's not what creation does. It's not with words written out. It is with observation and seeing the intricacy of how all of these things fit together that we are pointed to God as being the creator. And we say, well, what sort of things? Why is it that a beetle only works right side up? beetle has an open circulatory system. You flip it upside down and the, the stuff that circulates in it that's like our blood can't work when it's upside down. That's why they're always trying to flip themselves back over. Why does it work one way or not the other? Because God made it that way. Why is it that trees grow stronger when the wind blows them and they send their roots down deep and, and they, can, they can weather these amazing storms that sometimes topple the buildings that architects and engineers spend a great deal of time trying to design because God made them that way? All these things communicate what God is like in terms of His majesty and His power and His glory, but they do it without ever uttering a word. They say, well, maybe someone in one place would hear that, but maybe someone in another place, they might not hear it at all. What does verse 4 say? Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. That word line seems uh, difficult. In what sense is a line? Sometimes it's used to describe a measuring line, but that doesn't really seem to fit the context here. It would seem more that it's a line, almost like the, the metric line or the melodic line, something of a of a, what is the script, what is the text. And so, without speaking, they communicate a truth that really can only be expressed verbally, which is a fascinating thing in and of itself. But the point here is that this is across the whole world. Paul makes the point in Romans 1 that this revelation of God is sufficient to condemn all people because they know that God exists. If you stop and open your eyes and look around you, you know that God exists. But as we'll see when we get into the middle part, you don't really know that God until you know the law that He's revealed. At the end of verse 4, it transitions to this image and uses the sun as the, not the pinnacle, but perhaps one of the most noticeable aspects of God's creation that communicates His glory. Some have speculated that this is a correction to uh, ancient Near Eastern myths of 
sun gods and those sorts of things and that the psalmist is putting those things in their proper place, which is a possibility. But it may simply be nothing more than the fact that he's painting a picture and saying, of all the things that are hard to miss when we look at God's creation and communicate His glory, the sun is one of them. What is the sun like? In them he has placed a tent for the sun. So we all live in houses. We go home at night. We rest. In a figurative sort of way, the sun also rests, goes inside its tent, waits until the new day. But when that day comes, verse 5, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, newly married, full of hope and energy and looking forward to life, the sun arises and we see its glory. It rejoices as a strong man to run, his, co- run its, his course. Not all of us love running. I've loved it at various points in my life. Right now I'm not good at it. It could be if I worked at it, maybe. Never in the Olympics or anything like that. But some people love running and some people hate running. But if you're good at it and you appreciate the feeling of all of the things that go through your body when you're running and you're exercising and you look forward to that, a race is not something that is upsetting to you or intimidating to you. You're ready to go. The sun is like that. God sets this on his course and it goes. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. A faint picture, even of all its intensity and glory and the fact that at millions of miles away it can still burn your skin. I mean, think about that. Think about how intense that is and think about how the fact that the sun is one of thousands or perhaps millions of stars in the universe that God has created and God is greater and more powerful than all of them. The heavens declare the glories of God. But it would not be enough if God had merely made himself known through his creation because it is wordless. It is a wordless sort of wonder that it communicates to us. So we find in verse 7, the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord sometimes has reference to the law of Moses, but here it probably has general reference to God's word as revealed by him, as recorded as we have it here. The law of the Lord is described in various ways in these three verses. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The same word is sometimes translated blameless. This is something that there's no defect in it. Is there any valid criticism against God's word? No. Are there criticisms that people level against God's word? Yes. And they ultimately boil down to, I don't understand it, or I don't want to do it, or some combination of both. But the problem in those cases is not with God's word. The problem in those cases is with the person who is evaluating God's word. It's perfect with the result that it is able to restore the soul. It's interesting that um, in times of trouble, it is easy to turn to a number of things, food, sleep, friends, distractions, whatever else it might be, And sometimes you can do all of those things and still not find rest and restoration for your soul in the same way that 
contemplating God's word can produce that result. But God's word is not only helpful in that it restores the soul, but also, verse 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The simple is perhaps the main character of Proverbs, in that he's the one that Proverbs is largely directed toward. They say, well, isn't Proverbs about being wise? Yes, but who needs wise? The person who's simple. The fool generally doesn't accept wisdom. The scoffer certainly has no interest in it. And the person who is already wise is in a decent spot as far as wisdom. But the one who really needs wisdom badly is the simple or the naive person. The simple or the naive person in Proverbs, in my mind, is always pictured like he's sitting on a fence, but he's falling off toward the side of evil. He's naive, but he seems to, he just takes a little push to push him over the edge, and he goes down the path of foolishness. God's testimony is sure, certain, fixed, and has the ability to make wise the simple. So if we don't know what to do, if we need wisdom like the simple person in Proverbs, where should we turn to God's testimonies? Verse 8, the precepts, the statements, the assertions of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. For the person who is following God, what God has said brings a sense of joy because we know that it's true, we know that it's from God, it directs the course of our life, it produces joy. The end of verse 8, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It gives us spiritual sight. How exactly this works is something that People get into intense debates about, at least among theologians, how is it that God's Word illuminates our minds? But Psalms just simply states that it's a fact. God uses His Word to give us spiritual sight, which I think we all have some familiarity with because when we read through God's Word, inevitably we'll come to a point and we'll say, wow, I didn't see that before. And sometimes it was something that was very obvious. It just took three or four or 50 reads for us to get it. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The pure at the end of verse 8 is connected with verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean. Clean seems like an odd word here. And yet... In the context of a nation in which uncleanness and cleanness were a significant portion of their existence, I think David is, is simply pointing out that if you're going to be right and pure and clean in God's sight, there has to be fear of the Lord, which clearly in context comes through His Word. Is there a way to be right with God? Yes. How do we know that way? Through God's law. And that way endures forever. It's not something that changes. It's not something that we have to guess at. It's, it's consistent because God himself is consistent. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. When we read judgments, it's, it's sort of a legal connotation. The decisions of the Lord, the, the justice that the Lord enacts, it's true. It's, there's no... 
question of a bribe or being turned the wrong way or justice going astray. It is righteous because God is righteous. What is the value of this in contrast to earthly things? Verse 10, they are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. What do a lot of us spend a lot of our time trying to get? Money in some form or another. Verse 10 says, the sum total of God's law is more desirable than gold. And not just gold like I dug it up out of the ground and it's full of impurities, but rather much fine gold that's been refined and purified and has even greater value. Do we see God's word in that light? That it has more value than being a millionaire or the richest person in the world than having all the material things that we could ever want. God's word is worth more, more valuable. Know it, understand it, and live by it. We say, okay, you know what? Money's great, but it doesn't really do it for me. But man, food, that is the thing. Look at the second half of verse 10. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Some people desire money, some people desire pleasure. In this case, of a textual and taste sort, God's Word is better than that too. And if that weren't enough in terms of the value, then what's the benefit? The value is like them contrasted with something else. The benefit is, so what good is it in my life, verse 11, moreover by them, your servant is warned. Warned of what? Reminded of the words of Proverbs. The prudent perceives the evil and hides himself. The simple pass on and are punished. How do you know that something is evil down the path if you know what God has said about it? How do you find safety and turn aside from temptation or danger, all of these other sorts of things, by knowing God through His Word? Not only that, but in keeping them, there is great reward. So on the one side, you avoid the negative results of stumbling into trouble because you don't have something to guide you. On the other hand, you find the positive results of there is great reward in knowing God through His Word. And then I think in verse 12, we have a little bit of a transition. It's all sort of external. Creation speaks. The law points to God. Sure, it has benefits, but it's all sort of over there. In verse 12, who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. How do we know when we've done right? How do we know when we've done wrong? How do we know when there's something wrong? We need something external to ourselves to tell when there's something wrong. If you're eating chicken wings for lunch and you have barbecue sauce on the side of your face, you may not know it. How do you know it? Your wife tells you you look in the mirror. You need something outside yourself to say, hey, something's wrong. James says there's the possibility that we might say, no big deal, I'm just going to go around looking like an idiot all day long. That's not the right response. The proper response is, equip me of hidden faults. 
Help me to see the things that I'm blind to because they're such a part of the fabric of my life, I don't even recognize that they're wrong or that I do them. And help me to stop doing them. It has parallels to what it says in Jeremiah that the, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? I, the Lord, try the heart. So who do we need to help us see our hidden faults? We need God to do it, ultimately. And He does so through His Word, primarily. Verse 13, Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. There's a passage in the law that says that the person who sins with a high hand, who sins willfully and deliberately and in defiance with God, will be cut off from the people of Israel. I think that's the context of this statement. Don't let me get to such a point in my life that I am blatantly sinning and I don't even care. But there's an element of that sort of behavior that is... Sometimes you get to the point where it doesn't even seem like it's you doing it. Let them not rule over me. Habits are a wonderful thing, but the more that they're reinforced, the more that they become guardrails on the side of the road or chains imprisoning us. If they're right ones, they keep us from going off. If they're wrong ones, they trap us. Notice the prayer in verse 13. Let them not rule over me. Keep me back from presumptuous sins. And even before that, equip me of hidden faults. The things that I'm blind to, let's deal with them when they're at that point, when I don't even realize that they're doing them. Don't let me get to the point where I'm just doing them and I don't even care. Assuming God answers this prayer, then we have the second half of verse 13. Then I will be blameless... or complete, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. You have to wonder at what point in David's life he wrote this psalm. Was it reflective on his sinful behavior? Or was it earlier on in his life? And when he came back over it, later on would have been a cause for reflection either way, right? The verse 14, I think, is familiar to us, but certainly this sort of sums up all these things. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, what I say, because that reveals what's going on inside, what I think, because that's where all of this starts, be acceptable in your sight because ultimately it's not about me. I can do right for the sake of doing right or to be noticed by other people, but that's not really the point. It's for God, right? And what is God like? O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The stability of my life and the one who offers forgiveness when I've done wrong. So as we go back over this psalm, the heavens declare the glory of God. And if we're at all aware of what's going on around us, we should see that. But that we don't really know God apart from the law of the Lord and the benefits that it brings. But then what's our response to that? 
do we so fill our lives with so many things that we never have opportunity to see the glory of God in creation? Do we never take advantage of meditating on the truth that God has revealed about Himself in His law? I think if we're blind to both the first and the second, then it is quite easy for us to not get to the point of doing the third thing, which is having a proper response to them. Do you pause and ponder the glory of God? Walk outside. I know it's cold out there. Put on a coat first. Look and see the glory of God as revealed in creation. And then maybe walk back in and open up your Bible and see what the law of the Lord reveals. And then ask yourself, what's my attitude toward sin, toward God, toward myself, in light of these things that I have seen? The wordless wonder, the marvelous law that points to God, How does my life match up with that? Am I praising God? Am I lined up with God's law? The proper response at that point is to recognize where we are not and say, God, show me the things that I've missed. Help me not to sin deliberately against you. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Does the sky speak to us? Yes. Can a book talk to us? Yes. But what should we do? We should respond the way that God wants us to respond. So as we go to our time of prayer, let's reflect on some of the things from this particular psalm.